hear the word unity, what do you think of? Really, I mean, it's not a rhetorical question. Does anything come to mind? I mean, is it a good word? Is it a bad word? Is it neutral? Unity. A lot of people may, may claim, politicians often, especially after an election, claim, we're going to be united now. We're going to be united behind my, my election. And uh, for those of you who, who, who may not know, we're celebrating the Reformation, especially this evening, uh, this whole year, for the 500th year anniversary of it. And the critic in you, or the cynic in you, should say, man, of all things to celebrate, or of all things to talk about, how could someone celebrating the Reformation talk about unity? Wasn't that the thing that broke unity? Wasn't that the thing that, that caused this huge fissure in the church to then create all these denominations so that everyone became more, more and more disunified? Well, hold on. I'm not sure that's, that's what exactly the Reformation was about. But what are some bad versions of unity? I mean, an easy example, I would say, is like uh, Stalin's Soviet Union, right? Everyone needs to wear dark clothes. You're always going to wear gray or black. All the buildings are going to be the same. You're all going to be making the same amount of money. And it's this very dreary and, and, and gray sort of outlook sort of society where all of your differences and distinctions are wiped away. Okay, that's not the unity that we're talking about. How else do we think about unity? We think about it maybe in, in the guise of tolerance. Is that, is that a more friendly uh, idea to what unity is supposed to be, that we need to tolerate each other? I don't, I don't often see that that has a lot of, of, of teeth in it, other than helping each other just sort of not hurt one another. Right? If we can tolerate each other, at least we're not going to be killing each other. Okay? So it could be worse. But I think there, too, there's an aspect of false unity. Because you don't have the freedom to be the different person that you are. And so if the Bible in, in our passage from Psalm 133 talks about how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity, what could that mean if it's not those things? What could it be? Could it be a really good word? Could it be, frankly, it wasn't something I had thought about for many years. Not something that I felt was all that important, but then once I did, it felt like I saw it everywhere. Everywhere you see it. So I want us to, to try to dispel these false ideas of unity where maybe we're doing some sort of cause and we use Jesus to, to baptize that in, in the name of unity. To dispel some sort of false unity where we're, we're cutting out all the things that distinguish us from each other. But ask, try to really ask yourself, what would God mean when he says, when he wants us to dwell in unity? Let's pray, and we're going to come to the passage. Father, we recognize that you are Lord, that you are sovereign over heaven and earth, that we have gotten to sing to you, that we have gotten to hear your word, that we have gotten to pray and Father, we ask now that you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would make your word come alive as the two-edged sword that you say it is, that you would stir our hearts, convict us of sin, speak to us, 
to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. All right, so we're looking at Psalm 133. I've been going through uh, a number of different psalms for quite a while, and we come to 133, which is very short, uh, but also a, a very beautiful one. It's a part of the section in the Psalter that's known as the Song of Ascents, which means it was part of the songs that the pilgrims would have been singing as they ascend or go up the mount, uh, the mountain to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. A lot of them have to do with temple celebrations or they're on their way to celebrate. This very much is a temple celebration as if they're in the temple with all of God's people there and he's, the, the psalmist is lost in rapture. And that's how it starts. Behold, behold how good and how pleasant. In the Hebrew, it adds that how twice. It's like, wow, what is going on? And what is he beholding? Look how good it is that brothers may dwell in unity. So think about that just as the first point, that unity should be Magnificent. It should make us take a step back and say, wow, what's going on here? What led to this? What could be going on amongst these people that they would be unified? Behold how good and pleasant it is. And then he goes off in these poetic uh, uh, metaphors that we're going to talk more about later, but just seeing that is the first point, and then asking ourselves the opposite, why do we not think it's that very good of a thing? Do we not really like unity? You may get a sense of unity maybe at the, the Thanksgiving table. Maybe this is a terrible example for your family, so forgive me, but maybe I'm sure there are families that exist where this is a really good example because you come together as a family feeling unified. And that at least is what families are supposed to be. Maybe that's a glimpse of you're, you're, you feel like you're in it together. But ask yourself, why do I not really like unity? Why, why is it that when I see divisions in the church amongst one another, why do I not really, really grieve? Do I really care? Do I see what it's at stake? Is division something that we concern ourselves with that much? When you are estranged from a, a fellow believer or someone, someone in your life, is it grieving to you? Or is it just the, the sort of nature of things and you settle with it? I think those are important questions for us to ask. If you're one example, if you read many of the lists in the New Testament, when Paul gives us lists of sins to flee from, very, very often, the vast majority are communal sins that get at sins that lead to disunity. They're things like gossip, gossip, slander, malice, things that cause us to separate, to look at the other as other, not as one in Christ. So often it is communal sins, and then the flip side being communal virtues that he's commending. And then over and over in the New Testament, Paul is often addressing cultural issues by saying, guys, this is a cultural issue, meaning it shouldn't divide us. It's a secondary issue. And Paul is often grieving 
over that? Do we let our preferences take precedent over the goodness of unity? And maybe that's a very, very uh, um, low-hanging fruit as far as, first, we just need to see that unity is good. It is something that the psalmist is beholding as wonderful, that he is in the temple in Jerusalem, and he sees all this worship happening, and he says, behold, how good and pleasant it is that brothers should dwell in unity. But it can't be unity just for unity's sake. And so... I want to press on to to really the main point when we talk about unity is not that it's just unity for unity's sake. It's unity for God's sake. It's a God-centered sort of unity. Because maybe you hear unity and you hear uh, watered-down compromise. And you hear my distinctives that I'm really passionate about, I'm going to have to stop being passionate about and just come to some vague middle ground where all the outer things, the teeth don't matter. That's not, I don't think, biblical unity. It's not a matter of sacrificing truth for unity. So please don't hear that. In the Psalm, in Psalm 133, the metaphors may seem a little odd. Let me, let me just read it again. It's a pretty short psalm. Uh, oh, how good, behold how good and pleasant it is that brothers should dwell in unity. And then what is that like? It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. So that's the first metaphor. And so don't jump to conclusions as far as what you think that means. Because you could probably go in all sorts of directions. Maybe he's, yeah, there's a lot of things that you could speculate about. But first, we want to let Scripture help us understand that. So if you were to go back to Exodus 30, we get, told what that oil is and what it was meant to do. This is the oil, the anointing oil, the oil of consecration that was meant for the priests. And so let me just read this passage. This is Exodus 30, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, this is the part of of the the five books that maybe you would have skipped over. There's a lot of details here, and we think they're not important, but listen to what the oil is meant to be. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices, of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin, I don't know what that is, of olive oil. Take, take very, very precious oils. But then listen to what he's going to do with it. You shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. So this is not, you know, go to stop and shop and get the cheapest olive oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. Holy as God is holy, set apart as God is set apart. And then here's Aaron. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that you may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body 
of an ordinary person. This is reserved for the priest. You shall make no other like it in composition. Don't use it in any other circumstance. Even if it smells really good, don't use it in your house. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Why would he say it shall be cut off? Because he's saying that to be in the presence of God is to be holy. And that you need to be made holy to be in the presence of God. Don't act as if we can be nonchalant. Don't act as if there are no steps to take that, it, that, that the standard is so incredibly low that anybody can just walk in and it doesn't matter uh, uh, who you are or what you're doing. Here, over and over, Israel is told that you must do this and it is holy before Israel so that they can come into God's presence. The temple was that unique place where God dwelled. That's what that anointing, that's what the unity of the brothers reminds the psalmist of. Why would that be? What do the two have anything to do with each other? Think about that for a second. Why would he say, behold how good and pleasant it is that brothers should dwell in unity? It is like the holiest oil in the temple. Why would that be? Because only God can bring them together. Because what he means by unity is a deep, profound, souls are knit together sort of unity that's only going to happen in the presence of God, in the power of God. And so part of our understanding of unity needs to get a lot, a lot higher. And in order to help us, I wanted to read, because this is far more than just pleasantries, let me read one well, I'm going to read more than one. I'm going to read a couple examples of the New Testament about the, the power of unity and why it is such a high priority for God and why when he talks about it, we should be realizing, wow, only God can do this. Because this is more than just let's hang out for an hour and not fight. That's, this is more, much more than that. I'm going to read a passage from John 17. Uh, this is Jesus' prayer before he gets arrested uh, the high priestly prayer, it's an unbelievable prayer. If you could only read one chapter for the next year, read John 17 over and over and over. I'm going to read a snippet of it, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about, I don't only ask for the apostles. I ask for those who are going to believe in me because of the apostles' word. That they may all be one. Just as you... Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you hear that? That they may all, I'm just going to repeat it, because this is a mind-blowing section of Scripture. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. How deep is our unity supposed to be? As deep as the unity in God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the comparison there. And then once that is being shown to the world, the world will know that Jesus was sent on behalf of God. Why? Because only Jesus can create that sort of unity. We're going to talk about that more in a second. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. 
and I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And then he goes on. I would encourage you to read more of that. Do you see the importance of unity there? That it is gives us an, an insight into who God is and why Jesus came. To make us one. You could say that, why did Jesus come? To make us one with God and one another. That's not a bad summary. We are reconciled to God because before we were enemies, we were divided, we rebelled against him. And we are reconciled one to another. Let me read another example. This is in 1 Corinthians 1. You can pick almost every one of Paul's letters and find an example of him uh, talking about unity. This gets to the heart of it. I appeal to you, brothers, Paul writes, the start of the letter, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. He decides to start off his letter with this grievance. And the worst thing that's happening, apparently, well, I don't know if it's the worst, but a very bad thing is there's quarreling among you. How can you be divided? What's the division? What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided, or was Paul crucified for you? That's what's at the heart of unity. That's what's at stake. Did you hear those two questions? Is Christ divided? We want to say no. Was Paul crucified for you? Was Craig crucified for you? Was anyone else? No. Christ and Christ alone was crucified for us. And so Paul will later go on to conclude this section by saying, if there are going to be divisions, the cross of Christ, is, its power is empty. And so Paul wants to simply know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Philippians 2 is another good example. And he talks about be of one mind. Be of one heart because of what Christ did. And so why is the unity a a God-centered unity? It's because this is the way that Christ is to be known. That's the purpose of the unity. And so if unity becomes just unity for unity's sake, so that we can get along, so that we can tolerate each other. That's a false type of unity. The unity is for the purpose of the nations knowing that Christ Jesus is Lord. That he is Lord, that he has come. That, you may have noticed up on the slide when we we walked in, one author puts it, uh, D.A. Carson, the church is made up of natural enemies. You may not have known that. Um, But this is what he means by what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. 
Now ask, your, ask yourself the question, why is that so important? Why actually must the church be a band of natural enemies? Because once a church starts taking its focus off the gospel or off of Christ, there becomes some other unifying factor in the church. And it could be one of those things that was listed. It could be your politics. It could be your race. It could be your education. It could be your culture. If that becomes the unifying factor, what does the witness of the church say to the world? It says, this is what you must become in order to be godly. This is what you must become in order to be part of the church. You must become white, or you must become Republican, or you must become whatever it is. That's what it ends up saying. And really, that happens in every other association, if you will. There's always some unifying factor wherever you are, whether you're at the YMCA, whether you're at Yale University, whether you're at the Boys and Girls Club. There's something that defines you as being part of that association. You're a citizen of New Haven. That defines you where you live. The question for the church is always to ask and re-ask and reform and remember that what is it that defines us? What is the unifying factor? Jesus Christ, him crucified. And if anything else gets in the way of that, we are diminishing the power of Christ. We're saying he didn't really do enough or he didn't really have to die. Because what we really want to establish our life upon is this other competing God. Just like what Paul was saying. Some people say, I follow Cephas and I follow Apollos. Or I follow Calvin, I follow Luther, I follow Jesus. What's Jesus competing with? In your heart. What's Jesus competing with in your, in your community, in our church? Is there a competitor? What do we base our unity on? And let's be honest, CBC is not, we're not, um, we're not trying to act as if we don't have a problem here either. Christ Presbyterian Church needs this call as much as any other church. That's partly why we plant churches. So that we don't have to say, if anyone wants to be a Christian out there, you have to come to this building. Or if anyone wants to be a Christian out there, you have to sing like we sing. Or if you want to be a Christian out there, you've got to act, start acting more like the way we act. No, we're going to plant churches in a different geography or in a different culture because the cultures are secondary. Because the cultures are not the unifying factor. And that as the different churches that are hopefully being planted... The goal is that we are united in one Christ. We're not united by geography. But it needs to be. But, of course, we're not going to ask someone who lives two hours away to drive here. But this is a question that all of us need to ask. Another implication, and maybe this, is, this has been made clear, maybe not, but the more that we find our identity, find the unifying factor in, in our church and in our lives on Christ, the more that those other issues, the, our culture, whatever, our preferences, become secondary, the more that we can actually criticize them. So we should actually be more and more willing to criticize our culture or whatever it is that we are even passionate about if it's a secondary issue. So I should be willing to criticize what it means to be white because I know what it means to be white. 
I don't know what it means to be black in America, so I should be humble and willing to have compassion to try to learn to see what that means. Because if I know that I am secure in Christ, why do I have to justify? Why do I have to make sure that whiteness is better than blackness? I don't have to make sure of that. I just have to make sure that Jesus is Lord. And I should be aware enough and humble enough to say, what do I know best? I know what it's like to be a white man, for example. You see how that naturally flows from the unity that Christ alone accomplishes. This is not a, a, an extra thing added on to what it means to be a Christian. This is part and parcel so that Jesus will be known. It comes from God. One thing that uh, you may have noticed in the psalm in 133, uh, there's this repetition that gets obscured because different verbs are used. So it says, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, running down on the collar, and then the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain. Those are all the same. It should be the same word. It's the same word in Hebrew. You get the sense that he's at least drawing on metaphors that come down to us from God. This all comes from God, based on the grace of God. And when any other competitor tries to define us or be our unifying factor, we're saying what comes down to us from God is not enough. Is not our focus or is not our primary goal. And so that, that, that next metaphor, like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life evermore. Scholars are kind of, uh, we're not quite sure what to do with this because the dews of Hermon were really far away from Zion. It seems like what's going on is that Zion is really dry. So you have this vision that the dew, the, the moist land is giving life to Zion. That's what it's like. You're finding life in the midst of your unity, in the midst of your united community. It should be life-giving. And that's why then he ends by saying, there God commands the blessing, life forevermore. So another, another implication of that is that in disunity we find death, in unity we find life. Sometimes in disunity we find how to justify ourselves better, and we feel a lot more proud about ourselves, and we can find self-righteousness there. But we're really just finding death. We're being drawn away from Christ. Because we are told over and over that where Christ dwells, when he says, there God commands the blessing, life forevermore. That's where Christ dwells. He is a source of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So as we draw away from Christ, we're going to be drawing more and more into death. And you get a glimpse, I think, of all of this being put together in that Ephesians 4 passage. And this is another one of those, I think, um, woe passages that should make us stumble, should make us fall, because he's saying this is who you are in Christ. And if you notice the line of the argument in Ephesians 4, he says, I want you to walk according to the calling that you have received. Meaning, he spent three chapters talking about Christ has saved you because of his mercy. And because there's only one body and one Lord, and one faith, and one baptism, and one spirit, you should have virtues such as what? What does it look like to be unified? Patience, 
humility, gentleness, bearing with one another in love. Because that's what it looks like to be one community, not to set out, set out to form our own community. Not to act as if Christ unifying us isn't enough, so we need to do our own thing. He then addresses the question, yeah, but there's all different types of people in the church. It's not just one type of person. And so then he goes and says, to the church, we're given gifts from Christ. Apostles, prophets, teachers, shepherds, evangelists, to, so that the saints would be equipped. So that, and then he comes back from that diversity of the church to then, so that we would all be built up into the one Christ. So that we were built up into the image of, of Christ, speaking the truth in love. We don't have to sacrifice truth. We don't have to sacrifice love. It's speaking the truth in love, being built up into the one life-giving Christ. It's really quite an incredible passage. And so ask yourself, what is so hard about being humble among the body of Christ? What is so hard about being patient or gentle or bearing with one another in love? Does it get to the fact that you're not quite sure if there's really one Lord? Maybe there's a couple Lords and I'm going to hedge my bets. And I'm going to serve this Lord on a couple days. I'm going to serve this Lord on Sunday. I'm going to serve another Lord some other days. I think God is calling us out as as individualists that we would so easily become, to say, come out of your selfish justification into the one body of Christ. So that unity is is God-given and God-centered. And so just to start start wrapping up, I I also want to ask, all right, so how does this get fostered? Because it's a unity that takes work. That's another characteristic of false unity. False unity just means you can come and you're going to have it no matter what because we all assume we're all the same anyway. If you're all the same already, then what's the point? There isn't, I mean, you already have the unity. You don't need Jesus. But if this is really hard work, then what is it that we should do? Um, well, one is partly what we've already talked about. What are the secondary issues for you that keep trying to compete for Christ's lordship? You know, it's a, um, it's a pretty famous quote at this point. I think it's Martin Luther King who said, the most segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. Sunday morning. So maybe, it's, maybe race is what's competing. Maybe it's your politics that's competing. Maybe it's your education or, or your preference for style. But I also want to hit at an encouragement that, that I think we can miss often in the church, and that is when we, when we come to church, when we are a part of a church, we may forget that we are going to encounter Christ only as sinners. Meaning, if you're trying to come to Christ acting as if he didn't have to die on the cross for you, then you're not going to come as a sinner. But if you really are coming as a sinner, then the unity to the body of Christ is going to be really hard, and you're going to find your sin there, and God's going to work on your sin through it. So one, Leslie Newigan talks about a fake type of unity as reunion without repentance. Think about that. 
reunion without repentance, coming together, not having to deal with our sin, not having to deal with what distinguishes us, not having to deal, even not, not necessarily sin, even the cultural things that divide us that aren't necessarily sin in, in themselves or how God created us, but we've let them become sinful because we use them to justify ourselves or to put ourselves above another. Then they become sinful in our own hands. So if we want to come to the church acting as if those things don't exist, we're trying to have a type of reunion without repentance. A type of unity that doesn't need Jesus to die for you. That's what that is. What is that for you? We're going to meet Jesus in that way. So there are a lot of ways that we can, I think, try to, to foster this when we think of, of the sin that prevents us. One, one standard way, in this church, we take vows when we become members. Why do we take vows? It's not because we're a cult. It's because we want to say, before God, this is who I am. And even on those times when my sin seems to be winning, or even on those times when my emotions seem to be winning, I'm still going to be one in Christ with those in this community. You see what a vow does. Same thing with marriage vows. There was a wedding here yesterday. It's the same thing with wedding vows. You're not saying I love. You're not only saying I love you so much right now. You're saying I love you so much. I commit myself to you. Even in the future, no matter what changes about you. That's also what you're saying in the church. That can be a scary thing, but it's something that we need to encounter Christ reveal our sin. Because we are so, so tempted to simply submit to ourselves. We want ourselves to be Lord, but what we need is to confess to another brother or sister, to confess corporately, which is what we're about to do as we come to the table, so that we can hear the word of pardon from outside of ourselves. Because we encounter Christ outside of ourselves. We want the word of Christ that does dwell in our hearts. We want the word of Christ to be reminded to us over and over from outside ourselves. Paul says, how can people hear the gospel if someone doesn't send a preacher to tell them about it? We need to hear the word of Christ from outside ourselves. But if we are only committed to submitting to our own individual conceptions, we're not going to end up seeing Jesus Christ in the face of another person. In what way do you encounter Christ in, in the face of another person? In the authority that Christ has set up in another person? Well, these are some big, big questions. So pray. Pray that you would be made aware of these things. That you can learn humility and patience and gentleness in the community. Another thing about a lot of the virtues that the New Testament talks about is that you can't learn those by yourself. Bear, bear with the sins one to another by yourself in your room. No. This is where we get to do it because now as we are on our way to the Lord's table, there, that is where God commands the blessing of life forevermore because that is where body of Christ comes, becomes the body of Christ, acts like the body of Christ, because we are one. God makes us one. 
through faith and repentance. He says, all those things that you thought were going to define you, that you thought were going to divide you from God, from another person, even from your own self, what you were made to be, all those things now, set apart, set aside. Don't define you. Christ does. Because there is life. There, discern the body of Christ dying for you and rising again. Let's pray. Let's ask God for power and reflection as we prepare to come.